podcast, Policing Matters. I'm Doug Wiley, Editor-in-Chief of Police One. Hi, welcome back. This is Jim Dudley. Jim, um, in recent history here, we've had um, a, big, a big football game <laughs> here in the local area. We uh, are, of course, broadcasting uh, to you from uh, San Francisco, California, where um, nearby in Santa Clara there was the Super Bowl. Um, San Francisco is no stranger to large-scale events, albeit not as large as what we saw uh, in the last week or so here in the city. Um, you, you know, I, I, I did tour uh, the Super Bowl city um, briefly uh, one night. Uh, there were 100,000 people there, according to reports, while I was there. Um, and I had some observations about the way in which um, it was secured. Um, San Francisco Police Department was joined by a number of federal agencies as well as some other local um, uh, uh, agencies. And um, first impression as I was going in was the perimeter was solid. I mean, rock solid. Um, I, I noticed that there were there were uh, officers observing from higher positions um, and looking at behaviors and looking at, you know, the potential warning signs for people with uh, malintent. Um, the the security lines and the, the, the metal detecting machines ran smoothly and efficiently. Um, there were enough of them at every exit and entrance that um, you weren't hung up too long to get in. Um, and once you got inside, um, the presence was really unobtrusive. I think that they had stated uh, they wanted to be unobtrusive. They wanted people to enjoy themselves, have fun, and not worry. And I think that that really tight perimeter and you know very well-placed officers inside the venue um, really gave people that sense that they could you know, go out and have fun. The other thing that, you know, from those Overwatch positions, that those were the only cops you could see. Um, the other thing that I found was that they obviously had great coordination with other city uh, uh, agencies because it was clean, it was well laid out. You know, the planning that went into it was 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 obvious. Now, you know, of course, we have a history here in San Francisco. You know, we've had three world champion baseball teams in the span of about six years, um, and you know, of course, you were involved deeply um, with San Francisco Police Department in the America's Cup. You know, some of your experience there. How can you? Uh, explain how the process goes for other cities that are potentially going to be looking at, you know, a large sporting event or, any, you know, some other thing. Sure. Well, it's it's all about the planning. It's especially great for uh, pre-planned events to know when they're going to happen, anticipate the planning meetings. Uh, you get an idea of who the stakeholders are, who you should invite. And these types of events, uh, I, I've been a part of the World Series uh, planning, um, some uh, large uh, political events in San Francisco, the visits uh, by dignitaries, several presidents, uh, other um, dignitaries from, from other countries. And the planning is, is where you make or break the event. And bringing everybody together, getting everybody on the same page, writing up operations orders, um, getting down to the, the minutest detail that you can. Those are all essential in having uh, a good event go off. Not to say that um, something um, negative happens, but at least you're, you've got a pace plan. You've got a primary, alternate, contingent, and emergency set of plans in your operations that you can go to if something does happen. So communications are key, having the right people there, um, being able to shift your gears on the fly and, and mitigate things or 
move your personnel around. Uh, you have to have uh, people that have had the experience to move people to know and recognize um, critical areas of need of personnel. Uh, besides the technology of the communications, uh, a common operating platform between other agencies, not just law enforcement. I mean, law enforcement, it's a given. You're going to have uh, your state police here in California. It's the CHP. You're going to have the local uh, police and sheriff. You might, uh, I know we've asked for mutual aid from other local law and ag agencies that share uh, water areas with us. So when we had America's Cup, when we had the uh, World Series, we asked for additional um, departments that had water-borne uh, resources to come help for Waterside. So we had uh, Sausalito, Tiburon, Alameda, Contra Costa, uh, all these smaller departments that ringed the bay to be able to come and help. Um, we all got on common operating platforms. Uh, same radio channels, we had live video feeds, um, we had real-time uh, internet-based uh, chat groups that we could all talk ab about um, situational awareness, things that popped up, um, areas that needed uh, particular attention. Um, technology went into uh, going up on helicopters and having uh, flare capabilities. I remember during one World Series where we had a glow from the FLIR in a tent outside of AT&T Ballpark. And we coordinated our ground resources and they, we tried to check um, via our regular comms to find out if anyone knew what could be the heat source from that area. Nobody had a clue. We sent in a, a, a squad of uh, police officers. They got there and found that uh, there was a butane uh, heating lamp there. But it was really good to know that it worked, mm -hmm. that we saw something out of the ordinary. We had the capabilities to direct a small group to that area and find out what it was. And if it was um, an IED or something like that, um, we had the bomb squad on, on hand to handle that as well. Mm -hmm. So you've got your comms, you've got your common operating uh, picture, platform, FLIR, uh, license plate readers, automatic license plate readers. Uh, you may even um, deploy uh, radiological detectors. Um, cameras, of course, fixed mounted cameras, mobile cameras. Um, what else did we use? We Biometrics, I understand, were used at this um, yeah. Super Bowl. Um, so a lot of things that were happening, probably more things that we don't even know about. And it was a safe event. It was a good event. It was a happy event. I think the only sad people were on the uh, Carolina bench. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, the, the, the planning phase of this, how much in your experience did you red team? Did you have, um, did you have assigned teams to um, think like and act like the bad guy and go around the city and try and figure out ways to uh, create disruption? I mean, you know, in a true red teaming capability? Yeah, so in San Francisco, of course, um, we are a, a media darling, so it's a great place to come and protest and demonstrate if you want to get on national and international media. Uh, but, but having that in the back of our minds, we fielded a, a team of our own that went to uh, America's Cup um, preliminaries in San Diego mm -hmm. and um, another spot in, in the United States. 
And uh, we saw how things operated there. We saw the precautions that they set up there. We came back with an idea of what we wanted to do in San Francisco, and then we identified hotspots. We've done it before in almost every special event. We, we have uh, often had to be the middleman in uh, opposing groups. Uh, we do a, uh, we coordinate uh, and facilitate a walk for life every year where you have uh, pro-life on one side and pro-choice on the other side. They're not really friendly towards one another. Right. So we knew the path that that, um, that the group of the first group, one of the first years, I think we had well over 25,000 people marching from essentially the ferry building in, in downtown San Francisco on the wharf uh, uh, on a four and a half mile jaunt across uh, town to uh, the Marina Greens. And we identified hot spots. We did field that team that mm -hmm. said, okay, if we were the bad guys, where would we be? And we, we found the high ground. We found areas where you could send in a group to uh, essentially stop the parade, right. stop the march by blocking up one area of a street. So we did that. We anticipated it um, over five years running. We never had a big problem. We, over five years, we might have made 30 or 40 arrests, mostly single individuals, some small groups. Uh, one year on the fly, rather than stop the parade and arrest the eight or 10 protesters, which takes time. We, we had in mind the idea of diverting the, the march. And we did that. And without a hitch, we had a two, two block diversion from the original march and it went off without a hitch. No arrests, no delays. So one other thing related to um, you know, large scale events such as the Super Bowl, uh, World Series, uh, NBA Finals, um, NCAA Championships is the prospect that two cities um, typically need to prepare for the possibility of either in celebration or in um, in defeat, uh, people causing mayhem in the streets. You know, sad to say, you know, we did see that here uh, to an extent uh, after one of the World Series championships. Um, how would you recommend um, you know cities that know they're going to be in a championship event? Um, you know, begin to think about, you know, the, the hour or two, three or four or five hours after the thing ends. No, you're, believe me, correction. It wasn't just the one. It was all three of the world championships. We had major disruptions in the city. And uh, to me, it makes no sense that when your team wins, you turn over cars and buses and light fires. I just never got that. I, I totally understand people want to go out and celebrate, especially if you're in a town that hasn't had a championship team in a long, long time. And we've been fortunate in San Francisco that we've had many with uh, Super Bowl championships and baseball championships. And uh, we take credit for the Warriors as well. Yeah. Uh, but that said, I think the, the you have to plan for and anticipate the celebration or the defeat. You, yeah. You're going to have one or the other if you're going to have a game in town. Right. There are no ties in championship. No ties. And... Even you even have to prepare for a win or a loss, a final win or final loss out of town yeah. because people still celebrate or disrupt. So uh, plan ahead. Uh, when you go into the playoffs, you have to assume your team's going to win. Yeah. And so you, you plan accordingly. And if you never have to use those plans, oh, well, they're on the shelf. You could use them maybe another time. But you really have to think all the way down to the smallest details uh, you have to plan we, 
unfortunately, we didn't. Um, the second year, 2012, um, I was the uh, incident commander on the street when uh, it just so happened on one of our major thoroughfares in San Francisco it was garbage night. So the next day, everybody had put out um, all of their plastic bins of recycling and garbage. And uh, before you knew it, there were 16 blocks of fires from these bins tipped over um, newspaper racks. Uh, it got to the point where with this one continuing line of fire for 16 blocks, people were bringing out old futons, old chairs, old tables, throwing them on the fires. And uh, it really got primal for a while. And uh, we really uh, used a lot of resources to move crowds out of the street and to escort fire department down block by block, clearing intersections for 16 blocks while they put out the fires. And then we'd leave resources behind and move forward. Yeah, well, you actually get to one of the, the points that I had actually put in my notes here was working with um, fire and EMS. You know, that's obviously something that uh, you've done on myriad scenes, myriad occasions. You know, it's a y'all come situation when you have a problem like a, a large fire, a disaster, or everything else. So you train to work together. Um, but how do you, is it, is it at all different uh, in the preparation phase or the deployment phase? Uh, when you're dealing with a large-scale riot, whether it's in like Vancouver where they were they were decrying defeat, or in San Francisco where they were celebrating victory, the the, the riots look the same from the outside. Right, they, right. They're, they're identical events. It's just the, the 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 motivation behind them is different. So when you're working with police, uh, uh, fire, police, and EMS all together, how does that how does that get coordinated? Well, we if we know the incident's coming or we know the event is going to happen, we pre-meet at the. Uh, Department of Emergency Management. And so you have the civilian side of the emergency management team that helps allocate resources through the mayor's office, through Department of Public Works. Uh, they get enough people. Um, they, they do the contact with the uh, Department of Public Health so that there's sufficient EMS. If we know it's going to be a celebratory type of event, we ask for a sobering center. Um, that's something that probably developed in the last 10 years when uh, EMS resources were overwhelmed basically because of drunk people. Yeah. And so a sobering center or a sobering tent could be a, a tent with 20 or 30 cots where we bring inebriates as, as um, opposed to taking them to jail yeah. or opposed to transport in an EMS wagon. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, five years ago, maybe, I think it was uh, St. Patrick's Day or Halloween, where we reached a level of mutual aid, where we had to go out of county for additional EMS services. Mm -hmm. So the coordination through uh, Department of Emergency Management is huge. Uh, meetings between command of uh, police, fire, and public health. Uh, we have an idea of who's going to be incident command, uh, if we're going to share command. Uh, where we're going to have it, what the comms are going to be like, uh, how do we break up the city in, into groups and uh, resources. So the planning stage is, again, essential mm -hmm. and bringing everybody together, voicing concerns. Uh, budget is usually a huge component. Uh, how many personnel you have on hand is, is, uh, is a big issue. It costs a lot of money to bring people in yeah. or hold people over. And uh, at some point, you reach a fatigue level. You can't have somebody start at 6 a.m. and keep them till midnight. You reach those fatigue levels, and you're just asking for problems. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, as you uh, as you rightly said, and Gordon Graham uh, often says, preventable, um, it, it, predictable is preventable. That's right. And uh, so, whereas uh, if if out there you're uh, thinking you're you're going to have some sort of large scale event, um, you know, take Jim's uh, advice here. Go to other agencies that have done this stuff before. Um, you can go to Police One and, and find myriad resources, particularly on uh, riot, crowd control, and other things. Um, and uh, you know, best of luck to you. Yeah, I'd like to just finish up by saying FEMA uh, website, you can get all the ICS training for free. You can do train the trainer. Uh, the ICS format is essential in event management. There's event, event management specific training on file. And um, bringing everybody together, having that good situational awareness and not having to reinvent the wheel uh, gets you a lot further than, than starting from scratch. Outstanding. Jim Dudley again. So, Jim, um, on t- the 29th of January, right before uh, the weekend, um, PERF, uh, the Police Executive Research Forum, an organization that is largely funded by federal grants, private grants, and government contracts, um, issued a report, uh, the 30 Guiding Principles, I think that they called it, for police use of force. And in what I found to be rather stunning, uh, very quickly thereafter, uh, they, their, their announcement, their paper, was met with um, stark criticism from an organization that typically does not um, jump up and down in, in, um, in opposition, and that was the ICP. And the ICP issued a very good but scathing uh, letter or announcement there. Uh, I think that was on, uh, let's say it was the 2nd of, of February or so thereabouts. Um, and uh, I don't remember the precise date of that announcement, but then soon thereafter, on February 5th, the National Association of Police Organizations uh, issued another um, paper, and it was, uh, again, scathing in, in its analysis of the PERF recommendations. And I'll, I'll read a couple of passages from the uh, uh, NAPO uh, piece, which were really good. They, they quote first the PERF report saying, and this is from PERF, departments should adopt policies that hold themselves to a higher standard than the legal requirements of Graham v. Connor. And it goes on and on and on. Um, the, the, uh, <laughs> the response was fantastic from NAPO. Let's try to unpack that paragraph, which is just crammed full of half-truth, flawed assumptions, and dangerous suggestions. These documents, by the way, will all be available on Police One for your examination. Um, further in their announcement, the, uh, the NAPO folks had another couple of great lines. I'll read this one in its entirety. Police use of force must meet the test of proportionality. In assessing whether a response is proportional, officers must ask themselves, quote, how do the general public view the action we took? Would they think it was appropriate to the entire, situa- entire situation and to the severity of the threat posed to me or to the public? And NAPO is great. They go, well, no. Police use of force must meet the test of constitutionality, not the test of proportionality. And once again, all of these documents will be available for your consumption and your pleasure on policeone.com. Jim, um, Perf routinely issues. I mean, dating back to um, 2015 and August of 2015, dating back to August of 2012, 
um, these these kind of inane, oh, misguided uh, even um, recommendations on particularly police use of force um, with policies and 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 and, and ideas which um, one organization said lack merit. Uh, they're, they're dangerous. I mean, the, the recommendations in this list of 30 things is going to cause, potentially going to cause anyway, injury and death to more police officers than, than we've been seeing already, which is you know a significant thing because it's going to cause what we've talked about before, deadly hesitation in officers. If they're sitting there thinking about what's the public think, they're not thinking about how do I get through this, you know, this potentially deadly force encounter. They're not thinking about the right thing. You know, Brian Willis famously says you have to think about what's important now. What's important now is that I assess the threat. What's important now is that I make sure I deal with the threat. What's important now is that I reassess after I've dealt with it. So if you're thinking about what would the public think, well, first off, what does the public even know about this stuff? You know, that's that's a topic for an entirely different conversation. But just among police organizations, to see this type of uh, back and forth in the last week, it's been, you know, really kind of interesting. To say the least, and I think it's fluid, and I think the discussion is ongoing. I, I, I hear the urgency in your voice, and I, I hear what NAPO is saying. Um, when they see a document come out that say 30 guiding principles mm -hmm. that you assume is a new edict, right? Mm -hmm. But I've got to say, first off, in, in full disclosure, I am and have been for years a member of both the IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I'm also a member of PERF, the Police Executive Research Forum. Um, I know Chuck Wexler. I consider him a friend. I've been to the SMIP, the Senior Management Institute for Police at Harvard, and it uh, was a great experience there. And I've, I've witnessed uh, Chuck work several rooms of police chiefs and police executives and other experts, academics, who uh, would opine on... Um, certain issues and i think this is a timely one but but like you, you just pointed out there's been three major publications from perf on the use of force issue that have come out over the last three or four years and so it is a fluid situation i think when when they the recommendations come out talking about changes that we should make now i think um the dialogue and the discussions have to continue a little bit. I think when you tell people go over or under uh, Graham versus Connor standards, Supreme Court case standards, um, tried and true training standards, um, until there's a consensus or close to consensus and everybody changes and there's a timeline and a chronological time to Look, bring everybody together, bring stakeholders together, bring trainers, educators, victims, victims advocates groups, government people, bring everybody together. Let's, let's find out, let's demystify some mm -hmm. of these untruths mm -hmm. because I hate to think that we're going to uh, change the entire policy of police use of force based on a couple of misperceptions or misconceptions about police use of force. And... I've read several times the the quote of lawful but awful mm -hmm. in sometimes how police use force. And I agree with it. I agree that sometimes there are situations that are lawful but awful. They look terrible. They look terrible to police to police officers. There's the wince factor, I call it, the wince factor. When you see a video where 
um, you know, there's a move used to take somebody down or looks like uh, overkill or uh, looks like going beyond what is necessary force. And those are sort of moments where you have to take with a grain of salt. Number one, you're looking at a video. You, you may not have the start, the beginning, the middle, the end. You have a portion. You don't know what happened. You don't, don't know the circumstances. So those I, I sort of take with a grain of salt. But, but still I say the training has, has served as well for several years. We have had some hor horrific incidents. We have had officers indicted. Um, and I'm sure we've had some uh, found guilty and, and sent to prison. But to wholesale make changes at this point of the juncture, I think we're too soon. Yeah, and I think that you know those instances where you have something, as you'd said, the word horrific, horrific happened. It's such a tiny fraction of even the use of force instances, let alone the police citizen contacts. 99% of police citizen contacts go off and even arrest scenarios without any force being used, right? right? Of, course. And of course, the level of force is determined by the subject, not by the officer. It's decided by the officer what level of force is going to be required to, to fix the problem, sure. if you will. Um, but it is, we should recognize that it's the, it's the subject, not the officer, who's going to determine what's required in this, in this circumstance. Um, speaking of circumstances, when you see a two-dimensional video of a three-dimensional episode, you don't know what that officer was feeling, sensing around him, her, behind, around, you know, outside of the, the view of the camera. Um, you don't know, it, to your point, what led up to it. You don't know some of the kind of micro expressions. You know, you can't see on video some of the things that, um, you know, even someone resisting. If I'm just holding your arm, I can feel you tense up, and I know you're about to resist. Sure. So, and you don't see that on video. So, video is is a tool in an investigative uh, process, but it's it cannot be the arbiter of determining things like changing policy on the Constitution, on you know, on what amounts to being you know a, a constitutional question here. Graham v. Connor was measured. Uh, it measures, of course, whether or not an officer is be, uh, acts in an objectively reasonable way as another officer in a similar circumstance would perceive themselves to act. Right. No, and and when I talk about the the wince factor, and I talk about something that looks awful that may be lawful, I'm talking about some of the tactical moves where uh, you may use a hair pull down or a right. leg sweep or something like a, a hammer uh, blow with your fist where to the outside observer, it looks like MMA fighting. Right. I do know we put our officers on the street, expect them to deal with unreasonable people who resist, right. and we want them to get the fight over with quickly. Get it over with as quick as you can, put the handcuffs on the, the person, and transport them. Right. Boom, boom, boom. Anything that takes longer than that. So if you're asking for different tactics that look better, that may take longer, you risk the officer, you risk the offender, you draw it out, uh, you risk uh, crowds forming and maybe interfering. It, the longer you encounter the resisting offender, bad things happen. Absolutely. So, yeah, I say be effective, be efficient, get the handcuffs on them and get them transported. I've been in a couple of situations. I can recall one just before I retired, uh, maybe four years ago. 
uh, I think I might have talked about it on the show where uh, we saw my, I, I was uh, deputy chief at the time of our special operations group and um, one of my sergeants was with me in the car. We saw a traffic accident. We stopped to help a, a motorcyclist with an obviously broken leg and across the intersection, um, I see a woman throw another female on the ground, straddle her and start punching her in the face. So I take off at a gallop, get across the intersection, try to restrain the individual, pull her off the other individual, the, the one on the bottom runs away. And now I've got a tiger by the tail and I'm trying to, to put a wrist lock on her. Uh, but now we're going in circles because she's actually going with the wrist lock and she's trying mm -hmm. to bite me and kick me and everything else. Well, my sergeant arrives, he grabs her free arm and while we're trying to be as gentle as possible with this person and put the handcuffs on, she manages to bite my sergeant on the arm. Now, of course, everybody's standing there with the cell phones, cell phones and, yeah. and video cameras, taking pictures, and, and they're yelling, we see what you're doing, we see what you're doing. And I, at that moment, I had this epiphany of, this is what we're asking our young cops to do on the street. Somebody totally in the wrong, totally resisting. You're trying to use some approved tactics. You realize that you're at a crowd, so you try to mitigate things, maybe not do the leg sweep mm -hmm. or a hair pull down. And so you draw it out. You, it's, you make it worse by these ad hoc moves because it might not look so good. Yeah, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it really well delivered high impact baton strike is far better than 10 of them in kind of escalating force because this isn't working this isn't working i gotta keep going harder and then it starts on the video you start looking like you know you're you're beating the daylights out of somebody when all you're really doing is correcting the problem that you didn't use enough force to begin with right you know so i think that to your, to your point you know these these papers that come out um you know they cause you know they caused I learned about it on Facebook. I'm friends with cops all over the country, and so my Facebook feed is kind of, it's like all cop all the time. And th there were at least 20 people that I know that were throwing links to this stuff up. I think it was on Saturday morning. You know, kind of hue and cry over, uh, you know, some of the recommendations. But to your point, it's it's important to have the conversation. For sure. Because the citizens demand some type of new order for law enforcement use of force. Now, what we need to do is A, educate the public on what the use of force, justifiable use of force is, and acknowledge the fact that all force looks bad. Fighting looks bad. And we have to educate the public on that, that if you're going to resist, like the woman who is biting your sergeant there, the, the consequences of that action are there's going to be a use of force which is going to end up with you in handcuffs. Right. You know, so I mean, it's in my way of looking at the world, we have to figure out a way as, as law enforcement, educators and trainers, as it says on my shirt, um, to actually go out and educate and train the public. Right. And I've got to hand it to both PERF and IACP for, for bringing people together. The PERF had you know dozens of major city chiefs in that room when they talked about these 30 guiding principles. And some of them are very well thought of. And I, certainly all, all human life is is um, precious, right? Nobody's, nobody is less than anyone else. 
But some of the recommendations um, that call for um, maybe a delay in a, in a thought process or, or that would prompt a checklist. Uh, I teach, I talk about uh, the use of force continuum in class and, I, and I, I, I try to stress to the students, it's not a ladder of force. Right. You don't have to exhaust one it's, before it's, it's you move menu. on. It's right. a menu. Right, you don't have to exhaust one before you move on to the next. And, and I think sometimes the public is not aware of that. I think the public sometimes thinks that law officers are supposed to risk their lives, uh, even to offenders, to take them into custody. Hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat with somebody armed with a knife or a sharp instrument. Uh, that's not the case. Because the offenders aren't obeying any rules of engagement, or right. law enforcement are. You know, law enforcement have policies, procedures, training, and, you know, an experience, you know, and, and that sort of thing informs what's going on on the sidewalk. Sure. You know, and, you know, the offender has no roles. And in fact, their only rule is to hurt you, kill you, and get away from you. Uh, that's, their, that's their objective. You know, the law enforcement objective is far more complicated um, and far more involved. Right. I don't think the discussion's over. I don't think this was meant as a mandate to say this is the way we're going to go from here because it's it's actually not that clear. And if, if some departments make adjustments in their use of force uh, implementation and others uh, do something different, then you create different standards across the country. I think everybody should be on the same page. I think the training should be uniform. I think... Uh, as a law enforcement executive, yes, you make decisions for your department, but you should li listen to your trainers and you should listen to your experts as well. Yeah. Um, this, as you said, the conversation is not over. I think um, it's important that everyone listening um, take a look at these documents, um, you know, get, the, get to know them for yourself. I mean, some of the recommendations, you know, provide prompt supervisory response to critical incidents to reduce the likelihood of unnecessary force. You know, I mean, as, as it's, some of these things are just untenable. They're just not viable. Not, not all of the report, not all of the perf recommendations are as bad as, as the ones that we've noted. But the, the, the thing that we really do as we close here have to remember is that um, all of this stuff is swirling around on the Internet. And if law enforcement officers, even at the street level, don't really engage in this conversation, um, we're going to have it spin out of control and we will not have any real viable input into whatever changes come down the road. Right. No, I think, I think we can take incidents that have been used in the media, deconstruct them, and talk about things that we should have done better or could do better. I think, I think that's the way to go. I, unless we get a mandate from the Supreme Court saying we're going to move from Graham versus Connor, we're going to go to a diff different standard. I think the courts pretty much laid out the, the law for us. So to delineate from that, um, I think it's a little premature at this time. I think we can do an exam. So the FBI puts out reports. The FBI put out the active shooter report from 2000 to 2013. It was very well documented. It was almost like an epidemiology study. Mm -hmm. I would love to see an evidence-based epidemiology study of 200, 500 law enforcement uh, incidents where there were either fatal shootings or significant injuries as a result of uh, a police practice. And take a look at each of those and break them down into, did we follow the use of force continuum? Did we follow policy? Did we follow Graham versus Connor? 
And in the cases that we didn't, we really need to understand how training needs to better be better or how we can uh, train better physical tactics. But um, unless, uh, and you hate to say it, but unless the, the Supreme Court makes a ruling on one of these cases or, or police officers start getting indicted, um, the law is not going to change. And in some cases that have really been big in the media that have gone to district attorneys for prosecutions, they have not been prosecuted. Um, I can't think of the jurisdiction that just um, uh, put the onus on the county grand jury as making the decision on whether or not to prosecute a, a police officer in a, um, um, in a shooting uh, resulting in death. But um, it's been done and that, that sort of takes away the, the the, the onus on the DA and gives it to a grand jury, and now you're giving it to civilian people who get one side of the argument. So I don't know that that's the answer either. Yeah. Well, we'll pick this up again, I'm sure. Hello, and thank you for clicking, and thank you for listening. I'm Doug. Hi, welcome back. I'm Jim Dudley. And this is the Police One Podcast, Policing Matters. Jim, uh, as you well know, dating back well before Ferguson, but really spiking after Ferguson um, with the hands up, don't shoot narrative that you know was obviously and patently untrue, um, it became clear, more clear to us, that, um, that the citizens that, uh, that, that we serve have really no understanding of what law enforcement work is like, of what it entails. They have um, been informed, and I'm not going to say educated, I'm going to say informed, Mm -hmm. by um, CSI. So they believe that cases get wrapped up in an hour. They believe that there's massive amounts of technology where those pieces of technology don't today exist. Um, They're informed by, you know, terrible, terrible anti-cop movies like Training Day and, you know, things like this where... They, they form their opinions of law enforcement from fictional characters and from a lack of information and understanding about, you know, police training, police policies, police procedures, um, police culture. You know, they're informed, again, by these things that, that, that really don't, aren't not reflective of what it's like to be in a squad room. Um, you know, we've tried since Ferguson to figure out ways to better educate the public. Um, I have been a strong advocate for trying to put in citizens academies where they don't exist and doubling or tripling them where they do exist. It's been um, revelatory to see some of these activists, these anti-cop activists and members of the media participate in force-on-force scenario training and and have that light bulb moment. You, you can watch it happen when they suddenly realize, holy smokes, this is way harder than I thought it was. Sure. Holy smokes, I, got three, I shot three times because I wasn't fast enough in that scenario. Um, you know, I think that we have to go further. I think that we need to have some new ideas. And I have two to, to kind of kick your way and get your impression on them. Um, I don't know how often uh, uh, JAG grants are applied to Citizens Academies, but that's something because JAG grants are now coming up again. It's something that people really need to think about in law enforcement leadership spots, especially in spots where you have, you know, kind of some trouble with, your, with some portion of your, uh, your citizenship. Your citizenry. And another proposal, which is really not um, a law enforcement driven proposal, but I think it's something that we can work, work our way to support, is to figure out ways to get um, the education system in this country, 
Now, I'm no fan of, of you know, national education standards, but this one I'm a fan of is part of whether it's social studies or citizenship or history, which is what I took when I was in school. Um, in, I would say the, 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 the grammar school level, I would say maybe sixth grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, at the level at which a, develop, a child's brain is developed enough that they're, they're going to get sex ed at that, age, at, at that age, this is the time to really begin to educate citizens for the long term about what law enforcement's all about. Basically taking a package of a Citizens Academy and doing a three-week course at the local middle school. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think, I think it should be built into the curriculum at schools. I think um, so much of what kids learn about law enforcement is based on urban legend, right? Mm -hmm. And at the college level, I still hold urban legend discussions and say, ask me something about law enforcement that you think is real and I'll tell you if it is or not. And uh, some of the questions are just unreal. And I think it's our fault. I think it's law enforcement's fault for not demystifying what, what it is that we do or what they do. And um, it goes back to, you know, old policing where we were Batman. We pulled up in the dark car, wearing dark uniforms, jumped out of the car, grabbed the bad guy, got back in the car and drove off. The only thing you heard from a cop was nothing to see here, keep moving, <laughs> yeah. right? So I think now we've really made some great strides since the 70s with community policing, um, with footbeats. And if you read articles like uh, Broken Windows in the Atlantic Monthly by James Q. Wilson, I think it still works. It's you know a 25-year, 30-year article, but it talks about the fact that putting police on footbeats in, in communities and neighborhoods doesn't really reduce crime, but it brings together police on a level where people can talk to them, they see them as real people. I think that works along the lines with school resource officers programs in schools. And I, I think your second idea, I think school resource officers could teach it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that would be great. It would be great for the police officer to interact with the kids but it would be great for the kids to hear from a police officer too. Um, is this true? Can, can you stop us for no reason? Uh, you know, we talk about a consensual stop versus a, uh, a forced detention. And uh, I talk about it in class and say, hey, if police officer, you're doing nothing, you're sitting uh, outside your house or waiting for something and a police officer comes along and says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? If you don't want to talk to them, unless they detain you or unless it's pertaining to a crime, you can say, no, I'm, I'm, I really have to get going. And, and you can decline the conversation and walk away. Yeah. I mean, th those are little things, but I, I think people tend to make up, they fill in the gaps with what they see, just like you said, on mm -hmm. TV or in the movies. So if, if that's your impression of how police work works, it's wrong. Uh, you can't go on the assumption of CSI. And, and we would get complaints all the time from, or often from individuals who say, wait a minute, you just took a burglary report. Aren't you gonna dust for prints? <laughs> or what about DNA? You gonna take a sample from my toilet in case the guy went to the bathroom in my house? No, 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 <laughs> right? So, I mean, that's, that's where the officer has to take a moment and say, hey, look, um, it looks like he came through an open door there are no tool marks, pry marks. 
Um, I just looked the area where you said they went in and took your stereo. They didn't touch anything hard or flat or smooth where fingerprints can be left. So there's really nothing to fingerprint. I mean, there's, there's those sort of uh, feel good um, appointments where you can say, okay, yeah, I'll have the guy, I'll have CSI come back and, and dust for prints. And you put it on the sheet and maybe they come and look around and they find something or they don't. But those are really public relations tests. Mm -hmm. And on tight budgets, you really don't have a lot of room for that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that the, the, the pivotal piece of this conversation is that, um, you know, officers out there listening, um, you know, it, it's, it's an opportunity every time you have a, a citizen interaction that's not an enforcement interaction. You know, that's not, a, you know, you're making an arrest where you have to be focused on the arrest and focused on the scenario. Um, where you're just talking to a citizen, you know, it's an opportunity to have some positive interaction that they understand what police officers are about and what the police officers are out there to do to serve and protect the, the, the you know, the innocents right. and to ensure that the people who are perpetrating crimes um, are, are, are penalized and, and in some cases incarcerated sure. for what they're, what they're doing. No, I, and I, there are so many opportunities to do that. And I remember talking with Chief Sir here in San Francisco uh, several months back, and he talked about um, an individual who had uh, his bicycle stolen. And two things can happen when your bicycle's stolen. Uh, the police can get there and say, how long was it? It was at least an hour ago. And, they, and they'll say, well, doesn't really make sense writing a report. If you don't have your serial number, chances are slim that you'll get it back. That's the reality, and sometimes police tell that to a victim. Mm -hmm. The flip side is you can tell the individual, hey, get in the car. We're going to go for a ride around the block. We're going to take, take a ride around your neighborhood, see if anybody's out riding it still. That's another one of those sort of public relations things. You never know. Maybe you get somebody on the bike. But it's that sort of feel-good moment where you're doing something for the citizen. And there's an off chance maybe you find the bike. But that person gets out of the car, gives you the information on the stolen bike as much as they can. You file the report. We, have, we actually have a new great system in San Francisco for turning up stolen bikes. But before this, uh, you file the report, maybe something happens, maybe not. But that person goes and the next time they talk to somebody about their stolen bike, they say, yeah, but the cop was really cool. I got in the back of the police car. We looked around the neighborhood. I think I might have saw it, but it wasn't my bike. And he's got a story to tell. Mm -hmm. And he had a great interaction with the police. He didn't get his bike back, but something was done. So those opportunities are there. And there's there's a lot of opportunities, depending on where you live and the, depending on the kind of resources your departments have. There are CERT academies. Right. Uh, there are citizens academies. Um, there are ways you can volunteer at your local police department or sheriff's department. Uh, even the FBI has an FBI Citizens Academy. So if you're interested in law enforcement, if you're interested in finding out more about law enforcement, you can look for those, those uh, opportunities. And, and law enforcement needs to take, take the extra time to do a little more explaining about resources, lack of resources, what we do, what we can do, what we can't do. And uh, sometimes, like you say, in a critical incident, that's not always possible. But when you can, why not? Yeah. I think that what we really need to do is find a way to create more advocates among the citizens. Now, that guy with the bike, 
is probably going to be an advocate for San Francisco Police Department. The people who have gone through a Citizens Academy more than likely, um, you know, and are, are going to be at least an advocate or at least have a f more fundamental understanding of what's going on. Sure. Um, the, the media type or the, the ad advocacy type, you know, the anti-cop advocates out there who have gone through a scenario training and had the light bulb moment, you might even convince them to become an advocate for the local law enforcement. But the, 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 the piece that's kind of, for me, it's, it's, it's not missing, but it's, not, it's, it's lacking. It's not enough. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see enough that there are these citizens academies happening all year long where you know, the San Francisco Police Citizen, Citizens Academy is a couple of times a year. Sure. Now, just due to budgets, that's what's got to, you know, that's what, what's what it is, what it is. But what if there was more funding? What if there was, you know, you know, some egalitarian citizen funding more of those things? We have to figure out creative and clever ways to, 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 to stop the misunderstanding and help, you know, kind of help along a better understanding. Because if, and I say this all the time, if we don't, if we don't participate in our future, our future will be dictated to us. Mm -hmm. And it's the citizens are demanding all these crazy things due to a lack of understanding. And if, right. if, if we can't figure out a way to get them smarter about stuff, um, you know, and again, I, I don't know how it will, be, it will be done, but you know, maybe some, someone listening out there actually creates a, an idea that to have every middle school in their jurisdiction have a, you know, one and a half hour seminar from the local SRO or from the chief or whomever. Yeah. But, you know, to, to start doing things differently. Uh, well, I think we're just, we're on the edge of seeing that. So I think with social media, most law enforcement agencies have some sort of presence on social media, either through right. Twitter or an alert system or Facebook or Instagram, something like that. But I don't think we take enough opportunities to make a three-minute video for people to see on those social media sites to say there's a, a rash of burglaries, auto break-ins, whatever in your neighborhood. Take these steps to, to prevent yourself from becoming a victim. There's that. But uh, some progressive police departments have coffee with a cop, Yep. right? I mean, chiefs of police will go sit in a coffee shop and have, you know, all comers can come sit and chat. Maybe it's about a crime issue, but maybe it's just a chat with your local cop. Uh, and most law enforcement agencies have at least a monthly community meeting. And so law enforcement can do everything you can to push out, push out, push out the information, put that hand out and hope that there's another hand that, that reaches across the table for yours. But if not, then the community should be able to say, hey, you know what? I can't be a volunteer. I can't go to NERT training or alert training or CERT training, but I can go to my one Wednesday a month community meeting with the police. Mm -hmm. And maybe I have a question. Maybe I don't. Maybe I want to just sort of put my finger on the pulse of what's happening in my community. And I think at, at, at some point, the community has to realize that it's up to them to do something as well. Yeah. Well, again, like most of the things we talk about, this conversation will be resumed at a later date. Okay.